Again, welcome to Cornerstone Christian Fellowship. My name is Justin Boyer, worship architect today. Um, today we're going to look at the transfiguration. We've been in James for the past couple months. Past couple months. Uh, talked about James a little bit last week, but via John and John's gospel. Today we're going to talk about the transfiguration. You're asking why. I know you're asking that question in your mind. Why are we talking about the transfiguration day? Because um, the kids upstairs were supposed to learn about it today, and I wanted them to learn about the transfiguration. How many people have read or remember the transfiguration of Christ? It's a pretty popular biblical story. So it's not necessarily something new, which that doesn't matter. We shouldn't just think about new doctrine or new this or that, or well, I haven't heard that story. We should always be returning and ruminating and going back to the scriptures and hearing and rehearing what the scriptures have to say to us. And so instead of uh, continuing James, I wanted to stop and do the lesson that was going to be upstairs that I was going to give um, to the kids. So I'm excited about today. Um, if we can go to the slides. So the transfiguration, we're going to be in Matthew 17, 1 through 8. If you want to, open your Bibles to Matthew 17, 1 through 8. The transfiguration is all in, the, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in all of those Gospels. Slightly different things that it's telling us, but really it's the same story um, about Christ being transfigured. What does that mean? Well, we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, so again, Matthew 17, 1 through 8. And today what we're going to do is we're going to read the text. We're going to imagine the text. We're going to um, teach midrash, kind of study, think about the text a little bit and the different parts in it. And then we're going to listen to the text, meaning there's going to be a song that somebody wrote based off of the transfiguration. And we're going to listen to the transfiguration via that, via that art piece today. So everybody got that? We're going to kind of go through four different modes of operation. Um, each of these are important as we ruminate on God's word, as we ask him to speak to us. Uh, about who he is and the things he would have for us today. So I'm going to pray and then we'll get, we'll get to work. God, thanks for today. Thanks for your word towards us. Lord, help me to uh, communicate clearly today. Help me to um, be um, where I need to be as far as thought process, as far as delivering your word today, God. Help us to hear um, the text, Lord. Help us to hear what your spirit is saying to us that um, you want to speak specifically to each one of us and to us as a body today, God. Um, We believe that your word is alive and active. We repent of the things um, that we hold of you that are false, God, and we ask you to correct that thinking. We ask you to correct our hearts. We ask you to uh, love on us in the way that you do as a good father, um, as a teacher, as a brother. Uh, And we praise you for it. In your name we pray, amen. So we're going to read the text first. I'm going to ask Miss Naomi to read the text. Um, If everybody could stand for this as a way of honoring the word. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. 
But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. The word of the Lord. So again, I just want to stress the importance of trying to imagine the text, even if it's a text that we're really familiar with. The fact that there's certain things that just reading it or just kind of like mauling through it with your study mind, there's something that the imagination um, in communion with God can really open up. So I encourage you, you know, even this week, to just read the text over and over again and imagine the text and what it's saying um, and how it was being portrayed. So now we're going to go to the think portion. We're going to just uh, midrash a little bit, take out a couple phrases and words, and think about the text for a minute. And at the end of each of these sections, I'm going to ask you a question. And I want you to take that question seriously. And I want you to think about that question and how it applies to your life right here, right now. Okay, so, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. So, what does this word transfigured mean? It shows up in this form uh, three different times in scriptures. It shows up in the transfiguration. It also shows up in Romans 12, where it talks about, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the same word. So transformed, transfigured is the same word there. Um, And then the other place it shows up in scripture is 2 Corinthians, uh, it's either three or five, where it talks about as we look at God, as we behold his glory, we we are transfigured, we are transformed from one version of glory to another version of glory. And this is by the spirit of God. This is by the Lord who is the Spirit. So those are the, those are the three main places in the New Testament that this uh, word in this form shows up. Transfiguration, talking about the renewal of our mind, and then also um, us being changed from glory to glory by the Spirit of God. So this word, oh, excuse me, this word here, and Rob, you can help me with the pronunciation of this if you want, because um, you're Greek, Greek, Greek master, right? Metamorphao. Is that close? Yeah. Metamorphao. Everybody say that. Metamorphao. Now, say it with a little gusto. Metamorphao. Okay, good. So this comes from two Greek words, uh, morphao, and this means changing form in keeping with the inner reality. Okay? Changing form in keeping with the inner reality. So here, God is kind of pulling back um, the veil a little bit. And Christ is being transformed. And the disciples are starting to see not just his humanity and not just his teaching ability and that he is a prophet from God. He's something more. He's he's something more than the best prophet. He's something more than just a good teacher. There's something else going on here. And so God is revealing Christ, specifically some just little part of his divinity to the disciples at this time. And this is the inner reality of Christ. You know, Christ is fully human and fully divine at the same time. But here, he's just pulling back the curtain a little bit, and um, Jesus, his face shone like the sun. His clothes became vibrant and white. And the other part of this, this uh, word is meta, which Jay has preached on before last year a couple times. And this is a really important word for the Christian faith because it's this idea of being with. It's this idea of being together. Um, in a small group a couple weeks, months, maybe a year ago, we went through, um, there's this gentleman called Sky Jatheni, 
And he says that the typical posture that Christians need to have towards God is that of a posture of with. And oftentimes we have these postures of we want to do things for God, we want to do things from God, um, we want to do things over God, and we want to do things um, under and over God. Okay? So there, there's, there's these four postures of spirit that we want to interact with God about. And this gentleman um, who I look up to, he's part of Leadership Magazine, um, part of Christianity Today, um, is saying that with, this meta, this together with God, is a very important, very key thing in the life of a Christian. Listen to this. He says, to begin to, un- to, begin to understand how the life with God differs from the other four. Listen. Life under, over, from, and for God, each seeks to use God to achieve some other goal. God is seen as a means to an end. For example, life from God uses him to, simp- to supply our material desires. Life over God uses him as the source of principles or laws. Life under God tries to manipulate God through obedience to secure blessing and avoid calamity. And life for God uses him and his mission to gain a sense of direction and purpose. And in this, you can hear good things that are true about who God is. But it's the question of what is our posture? What is our towardness uh, in light of God? Are we doing these things as him as a means to an end? Or do we really see God? Do we really see Christ as the end, as the beginning and the end, as the alpha and the omega and the everything? Or are we to some degree using him to get, you know, significance, which he does give us, but are we using him for that? Or are we trying to be with him in the places that he has called us to be? And so, of course, Jesus is going to be transfigured. He's going to be, because him and the Father, what? Him and the Father are one. You know, they have this crazy, mystical relationship that um, is very, very unique. And they are basically always together. They are always with one another. So obviously it makes sense that in the presence, that Jesus in the presence of his father uh, just about all the time, that there's this easily this peel back of his divinity to show the disciples this um, internal reality of who he is. And so that question should also be asked for us. Where are we with God? Is that, is that our posture? Is that the way our spirit is connecting with God? Is it in the posture of being with? Or are we trying to kind of manipulate God by doing this? Are we trying to be over God by telling him how I want things? Or these other four things? So the question is, where right now in your life is God desiring to be with you? Okay? I'm going to repeat that again. Ask the Holy Spirit. Where right now in your life is God desiring to be with you? for transformation to take place and for his glory to be revealed. Where is that? Where does he want to be with you in your life? Let's continue in the text. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, there's this question, why Moses and Elijah? And there's a, you can read all the commentaries you want on here. Moses um, is Moses, you know. He's the one that led the people out of Egypt, out of slavery. He's the one that had this mountaintop experience with God where he got the, the, the covenant, the old covenant, and where God's people officially became God's people. 
God saved him and then God gave them the covenant in order to become his, in order to become, he was their God, they were his people. And so there's this idea of covenant with Moses and then Moses saw some kind of glimpse of God on the mountaintop. He had, actually had to be hid in a cleft and, and uh, God had to pass from the outside of him. And then do you remember what happened afterwards when he came down off the mountain? He had to wear a veil because of why? His face was shining. You want to do a really interesting study? Study that whole sequence in Moses, in Moses' life, and compare it to the transfiguration. We're not going to do that now. But as far as even uh, the numbers that are mentioned in here, as far as the days, there's, I think Matthew, who's writing to a Jewish audience, was doing something pretty unique um, from a literary standpoint in comparing these two. Because what he wanted the disciples and for us to know is that Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is his new covenant is going to be better than the old covenant. Then you have this man, Elijah. Sorry, you can't really see this picture here. Elijah had uh, multiple mountaintop experiences with God too. At uh, Horeb, I believe it was, he went up there and um, remember there was this wind that cracked the rock and there was this earthquake that rattled everything and there was this fire that happened. And then what does the text say? The text says that God wasn't in the wind. God wasn't in the earthquake, God wasn't in the fire, but God was in the quietness of that. So Elijah had this experience where all this power and everything else was happening, but it wasn't necessarily that God was in that. God was in the still small voice. And then there was this other part where Elijah really taps into the power of God. He goes up to Mount Carmel and he basically challenges all of the prophets to a, to a duel. Like, okay, so you think that your God is great well, my God is better, okay? And so if you remember the story, excuse me for the lack of details, you know, they come and they put um, kind of like an altar, a sacrifice place up, and they're basically trying to call down the fire of their God. And the, the, the pagans try to do this and nothing happens. And then what does Elijah do? Elijah goes so far as to make everything wet. Like he's like, my God is so great that I'm gonna make everything wet and he's gonna light this place on fire. And what happens? God shows up in this powerful way. Light, uh, light. <laughs> fire comes down and consumes everything in that sacrifice. So we have these mountain men that had these experiences with God that are both uh, long dead. There's some kind of ambiguity with Elijah because he was taken up. What does that mean? I don't know. Go, go and study it. See what, see what the text says. Um, but there are these two mountain men that are on the mountain of transfiguration with Christ. And I think that's significant because we have this covenant thing, this law, this principled thing, and we also have the power of God. And throughout all of this, what God is trying to say is that Jesus is better than these things. And it's not like we shouldn't listen to Moses. It's not like we shouldn't li listen to the prophets. But the thing is, is that Jesus is the one we need to listen to the old covenant through. Jesus is the one we need to listen to the prophets through. What does that mean, practicality? I don't know. Listen to the Spirit. Put him as the first thing as the thing that we behold, as, as the person that we come to. Hebrews explains it like this. You can't read this, I'm sorry. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, which is an interesting parallel with the transfiguration. Okay? He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe 
by the word of his power. Moses is good. Elijah is good. Jesus and what he says is better. So what are the things in your life, what kind of covenants, what kind of promises have you made that need to be redefined by Christ? What is this kind of power that you know about that needs to be redefined by Christ? That the power of God is this. Does Jesus redefine that? How is Jesus redefining that? So, excuse me. So that was about the mountain men that showed up with him there. There's also this word tents. What were they, were they going to like set up camp and, you know, get, do kumbaya around the fire? Eh, probably not. Um, one of the ironic things, and this isn't in the text, that to me is that when Peter says that, let's build a tent for Jesus, it just reminds me of, of John 1 where it says that Jesus dwelt with us. And that word there is tabernacled, which is a version of this word tent. And so it's like, let's build a tabernacle for the tabernacle that's already here. And so it's kind of like this weird inception, like that's the, a dream inside of a dream or a tabernacle inside of a tabernacle. I think there's a little bit of funny irony there, or a hot pocket inside of a hot pocket. Um, I don't know if anybody's seen that. If not, you're probably very confused right now. Um, but I just think it's kind of interesting because they're still trying to figure out who Jesus is. And so they want to build a tabernacle for him and the other two. They want to build a tabernacle for him, for worship, to stay with, to dwell with. And yet John says like, God himself is dwelling with us in Christ. Which is a crazy thing to think who God is spirit and he's dwelling with us in the flesh. Which should redefine what we think about the flesh in multiple ways. In multiple ways, but we're not going to talk about that. Anyway, tense. So it begs the question, what up with that? Why was Peter thinking about building tents for Moses and Elijah, and Jesus. Various reasons. I'm going to give you two. Obviously, (coughs) tents in the Old Testament, tabernacles, could have been these kind of makeshift places of worship. So, and I'm posing this as a question because I don't know, was Peter saying, oh, all right, we got Jesus here. Sweet, we got these heroes of the faith here. We got Moses, Elijah. Let's go ahead and build three tabernacles and and let's hang out and, uh, and worship these three, these three guys. Excuse me. <coughs> so was it a thing of worship? Because God definitely responds to what Peter does. And so I can see God being like, no, 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 no. Do not worship Moses and Elijah. Okay? So is it that Peter's thinking, hey, let us um, build these things and then we can go on and worship these three guys? Um, excuse me, and everything will be good. We got, we got Jesus here, we got Moses, we got Elijah. Is that what it was about? Maybe, maybe not, I don't know. This other, this other option, I think, is a pretty valid one, which was new to me in studying the text. Did Peter want to, thank you, did Peter want to prolong the experience that he was seeing? Which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but do you remember what happens in Matthew 16, at the end of Matthew 16? Peter gets rebuked there, Remember? Peter, Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going to be making my way towards death and towards the cross. And Jesus, or sorry, Peter corrects Jesus, which is always a good thing. And, and Jesus is like, no, get behind me, Satan. Your, 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 your mind, your heart is not towards me being with me in this. You're thinking about man's agenda and not necessarily God's agenda. So, and Peter gets rebuked. Is Peter kind of doing the same thing where he wants to set up these, these tabernacles because of the Feast of Booths, which um, the Jewish people um, 
celebrated yearly was coming up. So was he thinking, let's just stay here. Maybe Jesus won't have to go through this um, death that he's talking about, which I don't even know what that is, but maybe he doesn't have to go through this death. We can just stay here in the place that we're at. We've seen his glory, which is awesome. Let's just stay here. We don't need to move forward. Jesus doesn't need to go to the cross. Did Jesus need to go to the cross? Yes. Jesus needed to go to the cross. So we recall the rebuke in, in 16, and I kind of think that it's, that might be the reason that Peter wanted this timeline to happen. And God's like, no, this timeline is what's going to happen. This is the rhythm that I have ordained to happen. And it's going to be hard, and it's going to be brutal, and it's going to save the world. And so there's that question of the gospel. As we continue to walk with Jesus, we need Jesus just as much today as we did back then. We need Jesus just as much today than we did when we first got saved, when we first were introduced to him. And a lot of times over our lives, we can be in this Christian life, in this Christian faith, and, and kind of put Jesus to the side, you know, that I'm already forgiven, absolutely true, you are already forgiven, but is that being, you know, practically applied in life? Are you receiving that forgiveness now? It's funny because as I get older, I realize more and more how much of a sinner I am. Like I got saved back in 99, and then this, this crazy thing happened to me that um, really made me see how selfish I was. That thing was called marriage. And Naomi and I got married, and it was that, you know, I thought I was doing pretty good. And then there was this different place that God wanted me to be in. And in that, I saw kind of my depravity, my selfishness, my boyhoodness. Fast forward five years after that, this other crazy thing happened. Kids. I I do not see myself as an angry man. No, I'm serious. I, I become unrighteously angry at my children. And that's something that Naomi and I have been processing through over the years. Um, and I, and I, don't wanna, I don't want to seem like more than it is. I'm, I don't, I don't uh, abuse my children or anything like that. I become unrighteously angry at them. Um, and the, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God in that. I need to be saved and I need to be forgiven and I need to be transfigured and transformed just as much now as I did back then when I was first saved. And so I offer that to you as well to think about that, that the gospel is not just for then, it is for now, okay? That you need to be forgiven, you are forgiven, receive that forgiveness. Don't just toss it to the side and think that it's nothing. It is something. So second question I, I, I pose to you then. What experience, good or bad, are you holding on to that is hindering you from walking in rhythm with Jesus? Okay. Let me ask one more time. Think about it. What experience, good or bad, are you holding on to that is hindering you from walking in rhythm with Jesus? continue in the story. He was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Rabbit trail. When uh, uh, I've seen the fear, I've seen somebody in fear because of a white cloud before. 
Okay, Naomi and I were married on the West Coast. Naomi had a vehicle that was like an, I don't know, 84 Honda that we bought for $400 that was for the purpose of getting her to Canada and back. It had seats that were didn't match, and the Border Patrol sometimes thought that she was smuggling drugs in them. And as they're, it's like, what's going on with those seats? Why are they different colors? It's like, I don't know. I bought this car two months ago or whatever. Anyway, um, this is just an anecdote. This really doesn't have anything to do with this. But, and so the car was dying. And when I mean dying, I mean dying. And so the car broke down. There was a little bit of smoke pouring out of the back of it. And she parked it and said, Justin, come get me. So we switched cars and we wanted to find a parking lot to keep it there so that um, we could have the tow truck go. Well, we're going through all these back these back roads in like suburbia. So it's not like country road. It's like around houses. And this thing is bellowing, bellowing white smoke out of the back of it, okay? And here comes this jogger, just jogging, just jogging down. And she sees, it was so bad that I think probably from here to here, Naomi, who was following me, could not see the vehicle. It was a white cloud, a thick white cloud. And I saw, the, I saw some type of a fear, different than this type of a fear, but some type of fear wash over this lady as I'm driving by her. And she, and she was enveloped in a cloud. Um, I'm, sh- I'm sure she's fine. She was fine. Um, but just thinking about fear in the white cloud reminds me of that story, how, like, to, like yeah. That was, a side, that was a side note. So anyway, what was I talking about? My beloved son. This is great. I think Matthew is doing this trilogy of um, pointing people throughout his gospel to the specialness of uh, Jesus as son because he uses similar phrasing with my son three times in scripture. The first place is at his baptism. I don't know if you noticed it, but when we read this, it's very much like his baptism. So Matthew, you know, three and four, Jesus is baptized. What does God say from the heavens? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So that's the first story. Second story, transfiguration. What does he say? When the cloud kind of disperses or when the cloud comes over and God speaks, he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And he adds on, do you remember? Listen to him. So he has this add on of listen to him. So there's this my son thing here, my son thing here. And then there's also this other passage through parable that he talks about his son, that Jesus talks about him. But could everybody turn to Matthew 21, please? So we got um, the baptism. We got the transfiguration. And then in 21, we want to go down to the parable of... The tenants, 33, please, 2133. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to, it, it, to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one killed another and stoned another again he sent other servants more than the first and they did the same to them finally he sent his son to them saying they will respect my son but when the tenants saw the son they said to themselves this is the heir come let us kill him 
and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? And I'll stop there. So throughout Matthew, you got the baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son, transfiguration, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then Jesus tells this parable, this story about a vineyard and about a man that owns a vineyard and he sends his servants to get what is due to him. And they don't listen. They kill those that were sent to them because they, they want the spoils for themselves. He's like, well, I will send my son because they will respect my son. But did they respect his son? No. They threw him out and killed him. And so if we were to midrash this and, and think about it, um, the question I have for you is, who are we making owners of the church? Who are we making the owners of God's kingdom? Who are we putting in that place that only Christ has the right and the authority? And are we listening to him in that place? Is Jesus the head of the church or is, is, is Justin, is Jay, is Matt, is any of the other countless leaders? Do I put myself in that place that I am the owner, that I'm doing the work like the tenants were doing and I want to kill the son in order to get the inheritance that was offered to him? Who are we making the owners of the church and who actually owns the church? I use own there in a, in a positive and a negative way. Like ownership is good. You know, we are a people um, that are possessed by God and in that he takes care of us, that he provides for us. But are we trying to put ourselves in a different place within the church than we should be? And maybe we're not doing this externally. Are we doing this internally? Again, the posture of our mind and of our heart. This is my beloved son, God said, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Surely they will respect my son. Surely. Are we respecting his son? And then these are the things which you don't need to know about. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. Jesus came to them, touching them, saying, rise and have no fear. So I want to camp out just for a minute on this. What is Jesus saying to us? What is Jesus saying to you? What is Jesus saying to us as a body, to you and your family? Um, It can often be, what was Jesus specifically saying to the disciples there? Like God said, listen to him, okay? God just said, listen to him. And then what did Jesus say? What did Jesus just say? Rise and have no fear. So immediate context, disciples needed to listen to that. And that immediate context is pretty important, not, not to say we shouldn't hear that in our own lives, to rise and have no fear. But Christ is simple, but he's also uh, complex. I don't want to say complicated. He's not a complicated kind of guy, but he's very complex in what he says. And when he uses words, he specifically uses words. If you study scripture, especially um, the the Gospels, you'll see him quote-unquote semi-contradicting himself at times, or at least the assumption that he's contradicting himself. Or maybe that's what we bring to the text, because often we want to come and we want to have this word, okay, like an actual word that we know about, and then everything else we hear is filtered through that word. 
We kind of walked through this in, during Lent. This year during Lent, we went through the churches in Revelation and we asked God to talk to us about both the things he um, um, wants to go, you know, the things in our lives that are not good that need to go, the things that we should repent of, and also the things that we are doing well, that he is saying to us, um, you know, well done, my good and faithful servant to hear both of those things. And oftentimes we can go one way or the other where we only hear this quote-unquote condemning word or this word of discipline that's hard. Or on the other hand, I'm, I'm perfect. I don't need to hear any of that stuff. I don't need to receive the Lord's judgment in a good way. I can just have this thing where everything is uh, fine and dandy, peaches and cream, and I'm not hearing the word of the Lord on this side of things. So a lot of times we do this, like say with fear. Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So are we listening to what he's saying about fear in both ways? Because ultimately it's good to hear the whole word of the Lord. Or you can take things like with parents. One point he says, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his parents, blah, 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 blah. I shouldn't say blah, 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 blah for Jesus, sorry. (laughs) Yada, yada, yada isn't good either. And so on, um, that he can't be my disciple, okay? But then he goes after the Pharisees for doing what? For for disrespecting the family, where he says that whoever uh, reviles father and mother must surely die, quoting from the Old Testament. How about this aspect of peace? I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Somewhere else he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Now, to some degree, I'm taking these verses out of context, and I'm doing that as an example that I encourage you to read over everything. The point is, are we listening to the full word of the Lord? Are we listening to what Jesus is saying to us? Because when Jesus comes, it's not necessarily this pithy statement that he gives to us. It's not necessarily this spiritual um, maxim, this, you know, proverb. And he does work in structures and he does work in principles and everything like that. But when Jesus speaks to our hearts and souls, his spirit and his truth collide in the given situation. So what he says to Steve in a given situation might be totally different than what he says to Katie, even if they're dealing with the same thing. And so it's in that place that we really need to be listening and hearing what is Jesus saying to us. We do that through community. We do that through scripture. And to not necessarily take this and have everything else filtered through that, but to hear the whole of how God wants to love us and discipline us in his love and encourage us in his love. So the question I have to you regarding that, in his love, what word has God spoken that you are not being attentive to? Maybe you think it's too hard. Maybe you think he really didn't say that. And this could be coming, I'm not necessarily saying a mystical experience with Jesus, but through community, through the scriptures. Like, is there a word that he has given you, but that you're not being attentive to? And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And here's what I think is the the apex, the the whole point of the passage um, is the uniqueness of Christ and who he is. And again, going back to Moses and Elijah, we have these um, people that are in our lives or these experiences or these heroes of the faith that are good, but they are not Jesus. And God is saying that we need to shift our eyes and behold Jesus. It's like, yeah, that's, that's common church language. But if it's 
common church language becomes so common it doesn't mean anything. You know what I mean? And so we need to like, like wake ourselves up a little bit or shake ourselves or something to ask these questions that kind of probe deep into our hearts and mind, not specifically for us to answer them, but to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal these things to us, okay? Like, what is Christ saying in this? So Jesus only, who are we putting in the place of Christ in our lives? And it could be a false Jesus. It could be a little plastic figurine Jesus that we have molded into our own image, okay? That we have, and this image does this, this Jesus does this and that, but he doesn't do this other stuff because I don't understand that or I can't take that. And God in his mercy and Christ in his mercy is so patient with us. One of the things with the anger and stuff that I deal with with our kids is that I'm very thankful for the patience of the Lord. So I'm not saying this is like a get, get yourself straightened out kind of a thing, but I am asking you to ask those questions. Is Jesus Jesus or is he some fabrication that we have made up in order to, you know, get out of something, in order to live life in the way that we want to live it. From a practical standpoint, outside of here, um, uh, what is his name? Richard Mao came up with this uh, saying called civil conviction. And he was worried that Christians, and this book was written, I don't know what it was, 20 years ago. He was worried that Christians in the next 20 years, so now, weren't going to be able to interact with the world around them with civil conviction. What does he mean by this? He means that in a pluralistic society, what does that mean? Pluralistic society says everything is kind of equal. You know, you, Mark, you can have uh, Buddha. Um, Naomi, you can have your um, idolization of TV shows. Uh, <laughs> Justin, you can be, you can, uh, you know, you can say that art is the supreme good of this and that. Whatever it is. It could be philosophies of mind. It could be religion whatever it is that we center on, that in a pluralistic society, all these truths are the same, all of them are valid, and there's not, you know, one way to God. All ways lead to God. That's a very generic definition of, of pluralism, okay? But what Mao is saying is that we as Christians need to have a civil conviction. Civil meaning that we aren't jerks, and we're not, we're actually acting in love towards people that don't think the same way we think. Okay, whether that's within the church or whether that's outside of the church with something that is a, a, a lot more of a difference, you know? Like, we need to have this civil, um, th- this, uh, this idea of mercy, this idea of um, others being better than ourselves and actually interact with them in a humble way. But, that's the civility, but then there's also this conviction. He was also worried that people were not going to say anything that they were going to be civil, that everybody was going to get along. Can't we all just get along? But nobody was going to have conviction in the next, you know, 20 years. That we were going to just say like, yeah, it's okay for them. That we were going to love them. We were going to be at peace with them. But we weren't actually talking about or conversing with them about the conviction that we have that it is Jesus alone by which you are saved. That he is the God that we worship that he is the God that loves you, that he is the God that saves you, that wants to bring you into his fold. And so we need to hold these two things in our society right now very, very closely together, a civil conviction. And it's actually a good thing, you know. We think about, um, and I'm not going to get into the history or the politics or different opinions of it, but that the, the America was a Christian nation, everything like that. America is definitely not a Christian nation anymore, even if we think it is. And that might be a good thing for Christians. Why? Because now, instead of going kind of with the flow, 
there's actually this point where we're like, yeah, me and my house, we choose to follow Jesus. We choose to follow the Lord because he is better than this, better than that. And we're not jerks about it, you know what I mean? But we're also acting under the conviction of our faith. And our faith, not just within this building, but out into the world. On on this thing, I err so much on the civility of it. Like in here, with people that I know want to hear about Christ, to some degree, is that like, I feel enlivened and I love to share about who Jesus is. And not to say I don't say anything about Jesus outside of these walls, but man, I, I fall to the side of peace for peace sake, not peace for the sense of wholeness. And I need to repent of that and I need to figure out what's going on because God wants me to be a whole person that interacts with the whole world in this civil conviction where I'm convicted of the things that are true, of the love and of the testimony of Christ, and I'm not doing it like a jerk, okay? So that's the question I pose to you then. Where do you fall on this, like, do you fall on this side of things? Are you civil, but you don't live your life with conviction? Are you convicted, but maybe you're like uber judgmental and you can't actually talk to anybody because they're, they're completely wrong and I won't have anything to do with that and you're a jerk. Sorry if you're a jerk. I'm a jerk too sometimes. So what side, think about it for yourself, what side do you fall on? And how does God, by his spirit, want to transform you and transfigure you into more of a whole being, into more of a whole son or daughter in him? So the last portion of our time in the text is we're going to listen to a song. Jane, are you queued up for that? So this is a song uh, originally by Sufjan Stevens, performed by the David Crowder Band, about the transfiguration. So anytime we listen to art and to listen to God through art, again, the main thing is not if you like the music, okay? The main thing is that you are open to receive in the spirit, listen to the music, listen to the lyrics as much as you can. When you engage art, don't engage it with your mind. Just, Just be, not at first, just be open to hear from it. So you can even pray right now in the quietness of your own heart, Christ, would you say something to me through this piece of music? And he will, he will speak one way or another. Okay. So we're going to, Gene, if you can lower the lights too, we're going to kind of go into a time of uh, meditative listening and then we'll, we'll close up.
there came a word of what you should accomplish on the day. Then Peter spoke to make of them a tabernacle place. A cloud appeared in glory as an accolade that fell on the ground. Voice arrived, the voice of God, the face of God covered in a cloud.
the prophet Jeremiah um, is often known as the weeping prophet, and he saw a lot during his lifetime. And one of the things um, that his book talks about is how he saw even when the people of God rediscovered the scriptures, like the, the scroll was hidden for however many hundreds of years and they found it in a wall, even when they found the scriptures, um, he noticed that the people were no better with those than they were before. And that kind of broke his heart. Um, and what he was getting at, I believe, was the fact of this need for spirit and truth to collide within us. That the spirit um, and the word need to collide within us to the point where like, the word of God is living and active. And I say amen to that. Like, are we going to hear the word that the Spirit is bringing to us specifically in our daily lives, in our relationships, in our friendships? And so Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, um, at one point he says, can, can you change your skin color? Can the leopard remove his spots? And he says, then also you can do good who are accustomed to evil. And what he's saying in that is, no, you can't change your skin color. The leopard is not just going to by itself remove its spots. Okay? And you can't do good, you who are accustomed to evil. This is Old Testament, remember. But he also looked forward to the future where God would write his word on our hearts and he would do that through Christ. So the good news is that you can't change yourself. Yay! That is good news. You cannot change yourself. Okay? But Christ, the transfigured one, can transform you, can transform us. So if you're in Christ, you are, you have been transformed, you are being transformed, and you will be transformed. And First John, listen to this. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. God is working within us now. Amen. Amen? Okay. God is working within us now. I understand the frustration of life and how why can't things be perfect? Why can't things be on earth as they are in heaven? And the scriptures say, you are God's children now. Keep, keep, keep going, being with God. He's going to be transforming you. But there's also this thing, this future hope. Okay? And specifically in the context, it's talking about the return of Christ, which we've somewhat lost um, a theology of in our modern day because it, you know, it seems too odd. But this reality that Christ will return and that when we see him, like in a way that we have not seen him yet before, that we're going to be like him. We're going to see him for who he is and we're going to be changed, like for good. Like Sarah, so there's this awesome process that is hard that we're going into, but there's also this future hope that things will be made right. And it's not this future hope that we just cling on to and doesn't inform now. This future hope informs now. As it goes on to say, and everyone who thus hopes in him, so we're hoping in the future and his return of seeing him how he is and being who he has fully created us to be, purifies himself as he is pure. So as we hope in this perfect future thing that's going to happen in Christ that actually affects us now, that purifies us now, that helps to transform us now, that helps to transfigure us now. The transfigured is a passive verb, meaning that's not something that you do yourself, it's something that happens to you. 
Okay? So when Christ was transfigured, he didn't necessarily transfigure himself. It was God revealing the inner glory of Christ. When God is transforming us, it's not that we're trying to change because you can't change yourself, but that through the gospel, through Christ who died and was resurrected and who ascended to the the right hand of the Father, transformation can happen in our lives. Now and transformation, this final transformation, this hope of glory in the future, the consummation of all things, that hope we need to keep holding on to because that helps to inform today when this day when life is crappy doesn't mean we shut down doesn't mean we become lethargic or apathetic or anything but that we hope it's in that place that we hope could you stand so I could read some scripture over you before we dismiss this is from 2nd Corinthians 3 and we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord. So let's take a posture of receiving. God, I ask um, of you today uh, in your faithfulness and of your goodness um, that you would set yourself before our eyes, that, um, that we would be able to fix our eyes on you, to behold your glory of who you are, God. That you would give us a vision of you that um, comes to us and completely reworks the way we think, the way we feel, the way we act. We pray, Spirit, that you would do this. We thank you, Spirit, that you are doing this, that you are transforming us. We hope in you, Jesus. We thank you for what you have done. We thank you for what you are doing now. And with a ton of hope, we look forward to the future when all things will be made right. God, would you purify us in that hope? And would you help us not to be jerks? In your name, amen. Anticlimatical. Wasn't doing that to perform, so that's what I felt. Um, Thanks for coming today. Have a good day. Have a good Sunday.